All right, welcome to the Disability Law Show. Skulls here, and along with Tamara Gopi, and want to reach out to Tamara anytime. You're always, always encouraged to do so. And how do you do that? Simple. Phone number is up first, right? 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions, mydisabilityquestions.com. Look at that. The email's already piling up. We're getting to a, a ton of those over the course of the hour tomorrow, but we always start off with a, a week that was something you're working on, pal. What do you got? Well, this week I got retained on behalf of a uh, woman that I wanted to feature her disability claim about because she has a disability that arises from uh, an incident that occurred at her workplace. And I thought this was a helpful one to start off our show to talk about generally, you know, if your disability arises uh, from an injury that you sustain at work, you know, some of the things that you need to know. And in her situation, John, she worked in Sudbury. Uh, She worked in um, a large manufacturing type setting and she had a pretty significant incident where she injured her back and you know to her credit she had had some accommodation back and forth with her employer and trying to keep working maybe taking her off the line on the line different things that were going on in that setting for her she's in her uh, early 50s and has worked you know for this company for a long long time and so look she she went down that process and then it got to a point where she was simply not improving and in fact her health issues were getting worse and her doctor her primary general physician said look enough's enough you need to stop working and that sort of uh you know went down a path of a chain of different events and one of the components of the things that she's had to deal with is obviously her disability claim and the disability insurer has been resisting her disability claim they've actually denied her a couple of times now uh before she came to talk to us and one of the issues they seem to have is because of the fact that she had worked for some period of time after she sustained this workplace injury and there's a lot of dialogue uh that I don't think it's all that relevant, which is why I'm getting retained to get involved on her behalf. Uh, but a lot of conversation around, look, you know, if there's something else you could be doing, that's what you should be doing. Um, you know, we talk on the show that the first phase of the long-term disability claim, when the insurer is looking at it, they're looking to see the, the job that you were doing at the time that you became disabled. That's called the own occupation period of the disability policy. And the own occupation period really is what it sounds like. It's what you were doing before you stopped working. And the conversation that's happening now, or at least that's what the insurance company has put in their denial letter is, look, the job that you were doing is was the accommodated job. And that's the one that we think that you're still able to do, not the full job that you were doing when you initially became injured. So that is a technical argument, but one that I don't think is going to have a lot of legs, John, when we get involved, because um, there's a progression. And that progression usually is found in favor of the claimant. Um, at least optically, I think that if a judge were ever to look at this, they would see what I see, which is a woman who's been trying her darndest uh, to keep working and not actually have to access the disability benefits that she is absolutely entitled to. So this is the advice that I gave her, but it, it ties us into really nicely about some of the points that we generally give to individuals when their disability arises out of a workplace incident. And I think one of the things that uh, gets lost in the shuffle uh, a little bit is 
what if your injury is not like the client that I'm retained for, but what if it's a psychological injury? Uh, what if you've had a mental health condition or a mental health triggering as a result of the workplace setting? Um, say things like toxic work environments or harassment in the work setting, which is also very real and still ongoing. You know, we get questions a lot, John, about how does that feed into what happens with my entitlements to disability benefits? And yes, you are absolutely entitled to long-term disability benefits benefits if you've got a mental health condition, regardless of whether it is um, something that was triggered in the work setting, if you've got persisting symptoms, if your doctor is saying you shouldn't be working. And another layer of that is that you can actually access workplace injury compensation. So in Ontario, that's uh, you know workers' compensation benefits or WSIB, and in the other provinces we practice in, each of those have a work safe type uh, program as well. Alberta and BC have those similar um, you know processes and benefits as well. And why is that important? It's because this is another source of income for people, right? So they became become disabled, they have no income whatsoever, and they're really looking to see, okay, how am I going to make through now, now that I've got a health issue and I've got to access these other, um, you know, sources of income? And that's one of them that's really important in addition to obviously short-term and long-term disability. The other thing with um, workers' compensation benefits or work-safe benefits is that it is a separate thing entirely. So you actually have to go through and apply yourself, go through the tribunal, um, you know, have your employer put in the incident reports and all the forms that are required. And that's totally separate and apart from having to do all the paperwork, unfortunately, for short-term and long-term disability. So what I want people to take away, right, is that don't lose out on these opportunities of trying to go down these different paths. Um, the other point I wanted to make was that Psychological injuries also can be, you know, workers' compensation warranted. Though I recently read an article that uh, said something like 90% of these types of psychological disabilities from the workplace uh, that are being applied to for workers' compensation is actually getting denied. So it's frustrating because I think they're treating it like disability insurers treat it, which is these invisible injuries that maybe are not as valid in their eyes, which they absolutely are. Uh, But the clear takeaway here is that people need to continue to pursue their rights for these kinds of benefits. Super important, whether it's a physical injury or a psychological one. Uh, The last point I wanted to make on the things that you really need to know if your disability is related to uh, a workplace incident is that, you know, if your long-term disability um, benefits are ongoing and you're still receiving uh, workers' compensation and for, for loss of income, for example, you can still uh, challenge your rights for LTD, okay? And so just because you're getting workers' compensation doesn't mean that it precludes you or bars you from pursuing your legal rights for LTD with the help of a lawyer. Uh, Even though workers' compensation is totally different, it's its own entity, a lawyer can still represent you and help you with your LTD claim, even if it arises out of a work situation. So generally speaking, if people want to talk to us about, look, where do I go? What do I do? Please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We don't deal with the work safe work workers' compensation stuff directly, but obviously you can see, John, we help lots of people and get retained for lots of people who have uh, injuries and disabilities that arise from their workplace. You know, it's interesting that you said the denials with the, uh, with the mental health claims. 
Do you think this is because they're trying to uh, put a stopgap in the potential surge that's coming through as a result of uh, the past pandemic? Not just physical, but there's also the huge mental component as a result of that uh, that pandemic as well. You think they're trying to plug all the gaps before there's a massive onslaught of claims? So just deny right away and hopefully people go away? I think absolutely, because there's been a massive rise of this kind of disability, right? We've seen that. The stats are very clear. Uh, You know, there's no question that this has been a massive issue, not even just through the pandemic, but since the pandemic. And accessing those resources to help people with mental health supports has also been on the down. So you've got the rise of the incident of these kinds of disabilities with a down on the access to treatment. So people are not recovering. Um, At least they're not recovering as quickly as perhaps they would like. And the result of that is an increase in claims both for disability benefits and, of course, workers' compensation. So there's absolutely a resistance on a floodgates type thing for sure. Uh, but I also think that generally, you know, insurers have just not come long away enough on that path to understand that these kinds of disabilities are just as valid, just as disabling as it would be if you had a, a bad back or a broken arm. Um, I'm actually in the midst of working on a claim where uh, she worked at a long-term care facility, John, and she had a, a definite burnout uh, breakdown, mental health breakdown. And there's lots of other factors there, but her claim was resisted by the disability insurer. So I'm working on that right now. And, you know, I'm reviewing the claims file and there was zero medical review. None. The claims Come adjuster on. did nothing. Yeah. Um, the, her doctor sent something like 200 pages of medical information showing that, look, this is not something that was overnight. This sort of progressed over a number of years. She did what she could to continue working, but it got to a point where, you know, enough was enough. And the, the pandemic didn't help because she was working for a long-term care facility and long-term home care uh, situation. And so she's a support worker. Anyway, I could go on and on, but uh, at the end of the day, I think that insurers, when they're seeing these kinds of profiles, whether it's WSIB or, you know, one of the big bad insurance companies that we deal with all the time, uh, you know, they are looking at these kinds of profiles and thinking, you know what, if we approve all of these, um, you know, we, our bottom line might be affected. And so we're better off maybe denying these and, and hope that people just find their way back to work, which is not the right approach whatsoever, especially when I talk about these clients that I'm representing. Their doctors have been very clear that they cannot be working in their work setting. Uh, they need time to recover. And in some instances, because it's so chronic and sometimes treatment resistant, the likelihood for return is not at all. And if that's the case, and you've still got many years to work, that is truly what LTD benefits are for, that it's supposed to be there so that you have a monthly income for you. Uh, it's reduced, but at least it's a monthly income until you potentially turn 65 years old. How about the uh, facet of deductibility tomorrow when it comes to these uh, policies and these matters? What do you think? You know, I think this is an important point as well, John, is that these disability policies have a section that says, you know, we will pay X, you know, it's usually two thirds of what you're making. But if you have other sources of income, other places where you're getting benefits or compensation, then these disability insurers are going to take a credit for that. And workers' compensation benefits is one of them. Now, Workers' comp, I'm not talking the rehabilitation, they give treatment, they do different things. I'm talking just strictly that income amount. Uh, that amount is something that is typically a deduction against what you're getting for LTD benefits. So just be forewarned, be aware that that interaction can exist if you are entitled to both LTD and workers' compensation benefits. 
We'll take a short break, guys. Get to uh, Paul's email first. Paul, thank you ahead of time for sending it. You can send one along anytime. It may appear on, a, on this show or a future show, help at disabilityrights.ca. And the phone number, reach out to tomorrow, one 821 5900 we will continue lots more of the disability law show is just ahead hang on all right we are back disability law show thank you so much for sticking around maybe your emails coming up on this show maybe a little later on we'll find out that and you have the option of my disability free and anonymous way to ask questions and get them on the show okay as mentioned paul here we go guys i was asked to fill out a form with my work experience etc and include uh, a resume to my insurance after being on LTD for almost six months with a herniated disc pressing against my sciatic nerve, causing extreme pain from my lower back all the way down to my foot. The health system is very slow, I think. I've had an MRI and finally spoke to a neurosurgeon, which suggested trying steroid epidural injections at the site of the hernia. I'm waiting for a call to get that done. My case agent says it's uh, necessary for phase two of disability after six months. Is that a scare tactic tomorrow, or is it true that they can put me in any job they think I can do? It's not nice. What do you think, Smar? That's a really good question, Paul. And I'm actually scratching my head a little bit, John, because as I said at the top of the show, there's usually two tests to qualify under these disability policies, right? The own occupation period is usually that first phase, um, to use Paul's word. And that's supposed to last for 24 months or two years. And that's when the insurance company is looking at what Paul was doing before he became disabled by this herniated disc and looking to see whether or not he's capable of working as a result. And it certainly doesn't sound like he is. And so LTD benefits should have been paid. And it sounds like they are, at least for now. And then as you get closer to that two-year mark, then the disability insurer will look at all the other jobs that you could possibly do because that is when the change of definition occurs. The definition for total disability under the policy typically changes and it then says, is there anything Paul can do? Anything in the world for which he's got, you know, education, training and experience to do that would put him into a job that would pay you roughly what you're getting for your LTD. So two thirds of what Paul was making before he became disabled. And so that change you can see I would have expected it to happen at the one year or the 18 month mark after Paul had started receiving his disability benefits, not sort of six months in. So if that's what's happening with Paul, I've, I'm suspecting that his own occupation period under his policy is perhaps only 12 months or a year as opposed to two years. I've seen that on occasion, John. It's not typical, but I have seen that. And in order to get to the bottom of it, what I'm going to suggest to Paul is that he get a copy of his disability policy. And he may actually want to directly ask his adjuster, hey, why is it that you're asking me these questions? You know, you've asked me to fill out this form with my resume, um, which is, you know, John, he's asking him to provide his education, training and experience. So it certainly sounds like that review, that change of definition review is what the adjuster is doing for his disability claim. So. I think that to provide that context is important because then Paul will be able to know, okay, now the focus isn't anymore whether or not I can go back to the job I was doing before I became unable to work. It's now, is there any other job that I can do? And the medical information that's coming from his own doctors needs to address that. It's, it really needs to be much more comprehensive about whether or not Paul has the capacity to work in any work setting. I mean, look, he asks us, you know, can they put me in any job? Nobody can put you, Paul, into any job. That's not something that an insurance company has the right to do, okay? 
but they will do a pressure tactic. And you're right. That is exactly what it is to pressure you to try and get to a point where you've got to make some bad choices. And the choices are, you know, do I get back to work? Do I give up my work? What do I do from a health perspective? Or do I pursue LTD for more benefits because they've made the wrong decision. And the vast majority of the claims that I see, John, the insurance company has made the bad decision on the change of definition. They're keen to get these people off claim, right? They don't want Paul on for a long time, especially if it's going to take a long time for him to get the treatment, right? He says to us that it's taken a while now already. Um, You know, there's been a suggestion for further treatment um, with steroid injections and this kind of thing. And he's waiting for all of that to be put in place. And look, the hope and expectation is that he will get to a point of recovery that there is some capacity for him to work. But if there isn't, then you know, the LTD insured should be holding the bag. They should actually be paying the LTD benefit. And so I really, really think that we should start with Paul's situation and finding out what does the policy actually say and then put into context what it is that he's hearing from his adjuster. And that way, as I said, he can inform his own treatment providers, look, the lens is no longer whether I can go back to my job, but in any work setting. And so, Doc, what say you about whether or not I can work? The hope is, is that his doctor will be providing consistent medical information, very clear about, hey, it's not just his own job, it's any job, and he is still disabled, and we don't know what's going to happen after he gets these, these steroid injections. So insurance company, you should be continuing to pay LTD. And if they don't, then hopefully Paul knows, you know, I would recommend in a situation like that, a likely legal claim against the insurance company to assert those rights. Paul, thank you so much for reaching out, pal. You can uh, continue the conversation with tomorrow. Obviously, you got the email, right? But the phone number, one 821 5900 Let's get to a question. I mentioned this website as well, mydisabilityquestions.com. It's a beauty because it's uh, free, it's anonymous, and it's also a searchable website. So maybe a question like yours has previously come up. If not, leave it there and it'll get answered. Uh, This one says, guys, I'm 35 years of age. Last year, doctor did a sleep study that suggested I use a CPAP machine for sleep apnea. I was not using this machine as I was unaware of the implications slash dangers of using it. Now I have blood pressure, which was detected a few months ago. I also have diabetes and feelings of depression and anxiety and memory loss problems. Now the doctor has again suggested I use the sleep apnea machine. And I've started to use, but the problem persists. Can I claim disability benefits? Please advise. Wow. Really good question. Yeah. Yeah, really good question. You know what, John? It's actually more of a medical one, though, right? Than a legal one. I would say that if this person is getting the advice that um, he should not or she should not be working as a result of all of these health issues that they've described, then absolutely you are entitled to disability benefits for all or one of the health issues, right? It could be insomnia, it could be the memory loss problems, it could be the depression, it could be the anxiety. And so, you know, I think that you want to start having a real discussion with your own treatment provider to say, hey, okay, I've got all these health issues. I know you recommended this medical treatment. Okay, now I'm doing it, but I'm still experiencing all of these health issues. You know, when is the right time to actually assert a a disability claim? And the right time is when you and your doctors have had a real conversation about whether you should be working 
given these health issues, right? I don't know what this individual does, John. I mean, they say they're 35 years old, uh, right. but you know, what, what kind of work do they do? Is it a safety sensitive type job? Like think about, you know, doing a job um, in a manufacturing setting. You know, if you're constantly fatigued, if you're feeling anxious um, and you've got to make 17,000 widgets a day, you know, that's going to be real tough to do when you've got those kinds of health issues. Um, but as I said, you know, this isn't the type of advice that I would normally give in terms of legal advice. It's actually medical. And so it starts really from what the doctor is advising and going from there. But there is an important component to this um, email that I want to touch on, which is when your doctor makes a recommendation for a certain treatment plan, you know, what do you do if you've decided not to do that plan? Could that have an impact on getting disability benefits? And the answer to that is yes, it can absolutely have an impact. You know, having the right treatment for the health issues that you have and trying to get better by following medical advice is an important part of disability benefits and entitlement to disability benefits. These disability policies and these insurers, they're not dumb, John. They've got a whole whack of lawyers as well, right, who are writing these policies and they have consistently included in their policies a requirement that says You've got to be under medical care and you've got to be following reasonable treatment in order to qualify and continue to receive your long-term or short-term disability benefits. You know, these benefits are not made available to people to just simply, um, you know, say, I can't work and just sit back and accept the monthly income. It doesn't work that way. You've got to be following the medical advice that you're receiving, um, at least from your own treatment providers. Different conversation, different story, different advice, John, if it's the adjuster who's saying, you should be doing this and I think you should do this, and if you don't, then we're not going to pay your LTD. I've seen that happen, and that I don't advise. That I I don't think is the right approach. And I do think that insurance companies have opened themselves up to a lot of risk and more legal claims, frankly, when they take approaches like that. But it's a different um, set of criteria when you're getting that kind of information advice from your own doctors. So you do want to follow that medical advice. And the timing in terms of making that disability claim really does matter if it's come to a point that your health is preventing you from working, then that's the time. And I wouldn't delay. Um, I would make that disability claim and then continue to try and see what treatment options work best for you. Uh, and the idea is, is that you should be receiving disability benefits while you're going through that process of health and recovery with your own medical team. Do you think it's going to be another situation where the disability insurer, assuming that all rolls out nicely, is going to be, you know, see one of our doctors go for follow-up, so on and so forth, because that can also add a layer of stress too, right? It can. It can. And actually, it, it sort of reminds me even with, um, you know, the uh, the email that Paul sent us that we were dealing with just a little while back. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. what happens when insurance companies are assessing these kinds of disability claims, and especially when they get to these important phases of changes of definition and, you know, the entitlement to continue to qualify. One of the things that they routinely will do if they want to bring the claim to an end sooner than later, is to actually have you assessed by one of their own doctors. That can happen. And yes, their policy allows them generally to have that assessment be completed. And so you have to cooperate with that process, unfortunately, but be mindful of the fact that 
that is not a doctor there to care for you. That is a doctor that's being hired specifically as a hired gun by the insurance company. They are given a very strict mandate of what to say and do. Um, usually they meet with claimants for an hour, maybe less, maybe a little more. And after that hour, they have to answer three or four very specific questions that the insurance company has asked this doctor to answer about you. And those questions, one of them, will for sure be one that says, can this person work? If this person can't work now, when can they work? Because that will then inform how long the LTD benefits have to be paid. So imagine, John, they're, they're paying this doctor, what, $3,000, $5,000? I've seen lots of uh, massive bills, many thousands of dollars being spent on an, on an expert like this to do what they describe as, quote unquote, an independent medical evaluation. It's not independent because it's driven by the insurance company and they've asked the claimant, someone like Paul, someone like um, this other individual who wrote to us on mydisabilityquestions.com and they're going to get that assessment. And at the end of that assessment, there's going to be a 10 or 15 page report sent to the insurance company. And so if this is your situation, you want to get a copy of that report. The adjusters very much resist sending it to the claimants. I don't, I don't know why, John, why they resist it, but for whatever reason, they often don't want to provide the medical assessment report to the claimant. They'll say, no, 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 we're going to send it to your own doctor. Okay, fine. Send it to my doctor, but at least make sure that you and your doctor are looking at it. You're reviewing it. You're seeing if there's any errors in there anything that's, you know, um, mischaracterized. Uh, I've been told by lots of clients, there's, you know, they only met with me for 10 minutes tomorrow, 10 minutes. And they said in here that it was a one hour or two hour assessment. You know, it's, it's not right. And so these kinds of um, important assumptions that are being made are really critical to review so that you and your own doctor can then challenge them. And if the insurance company is going to rely on this report to deny your claim, you want to be ready. You want to be ready so that you can then build the right kind of information to say to the insurance company, you made the wrong decision, you were too hasty in denying my benefits, this assessment isn't worth the paper that it's written on, and by the way, here's the opinion from my own medical team, my own doctor, my own specialist that says, I'm not capable of working and here's why. So. There are things that you can do if you are being are experiencing these kinds of situations. And let's not forget, there's lots of really helpful information on our websites. There's one in particular, ltdfaq.ca, that I really, really like, John. Really easy memos for people to look at to consider, hey, you know, what do I do if I'm being asked to go to an independent medical examination? What do I do for my change of definition? So please, if you're listening, folks, and you want some further information on any of the, of the topics that we talk about on our shows, don't hesitate to take a peek at that website. You betcha. And with that, we'll take a break, and uh, I'll give you some more contact information as the website says, uh, Tamar just said. The phone number, one 821 5900 You can write us in there at mydisabilityquestions.com or simply disabilityrights.ca. There's a website you should be using all the time as well. More emails on the way. Uh, Mallory, you're up next. Uh, thank you in advance for sending this along. We'll get to that after a uh, tiny break here on the Disability Law Show. Hang on. All right, we are back. Disability Law Show. Tamar Agopian is here. She is the one with all the knowledge who you want to reach out to, get some answers, have that conversation. Phone number, 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Okay, Mallory, thank you. Here's your uh, email. We're going to get to this one. Tamar says, uh, hi, guys. I'm hoping to get advice prior to my second LTD appeal with the insurance company. Second, I've been on LTD for five years now due to inflammatory arthritis. I hope to try a gradual return to work but cannot, as per my doctor. 
I've contacted my union, but they have been less than helpful and unsupportive. I'm told that I can consult a lawyer since they will not. I complied with letters and medical documentation for my initial appeal. I plan to send the most recent letter from the doctor to the insurance company, but my disability representative at the union doesn't think I have a case for an appeal based on this information. I also tried contacting the insurance company multiple times over the past month with questions like, what is the test for disability in my policy? And I have yet to get a phone call back. Is there anything more I can do here? Oh, Mallory, there's so much you can do here. I want you to start with hiring a lawyer to help you. Um, John, there's just, there's just so much in her email to us that I really want to touch on. And I want to start really with this appeal process, okay? Because I think that that's the part of it that's really, really bothering me is that the union is even saying to her, hey, yeah, you've got this additional letter and she's thinking about sending it over. And if I've, if I've counted it right, it's going to be her third appeal now to the insurance company to say, pretty please, will you uh, overturn your decision and continue paying my LTD benefit? I, I don't like it because she's already been denied a couple of times. It's just human nature, John, and it's the same adjusters usually looking at the same kind of information and saying no and no again. Uh, or it's, you know, the adjuster that's sitting across from the cubicle or, you know, some virtual office space. But at the end of the day, it's not any new uh, approach or any new fresh eyes being put on evaluating whether Mallory meets the test of total disability. And really, I think what they're concerned about is this idea of the graduated return to work and the fact that she's been off for a number of years. And so, you know, just to close out that idea of the appeal, you know, there's no requirements for them to contact her, John. They've made the decision that they've denied her claim a couple of times now. And so she's trying to get a hold of them, but they've closed the claim from their perspective. And so unless they receive further new information, they're not really going to be all that responsive because they don't have to pay Mallory the benefit. So I'm not surprised of those kinds of things that are happening because they know that if they run down that clock, Mallory may eventually be out of time to sue the insurance company for benefits. You only have two years, John, two years from the first time they said no to you. So the appeal process works against individuals from finding out what their rights are and pursuing that legal claim quickly. It keeps people in that insurance company's process where there are no checks and balances, there's no clear requirements of when they're supposed to respond to people or at all. And like I said, no responsibility or obligation for them to put a fresh set of eyes to really take a hard look at these claims and what they've done. So there's no oversight. So for a whole host of reasons and then some, I really don't like the idea of Mallory continuing to try and appeal her claim. I would much prefer to see her not waste any more time or energy and let it be my problem. Myself, any member of my team, we do this day in and day out. And I think the fact that she's got further medical support will only make it that much easier for us to strong on the insurance company to come to the table. And quickly, John, this isn't something that takes a long time. We have very high degree of success in settling our claims within months of getting retained. And especially when the medical information is, is in place already, uh, even though that's part of our services, if Mallory has that all ready to go, then it is not that hard. We will start the lawsuit. They will get uh, one of their lawyers retained. It's usually some of the people we deal with day in and day out. And we're going to talk about resolving the claim. So that's the element I really wanted to talk about. But there's there's another component to this, and it's both the graduated return and the union component. So let's start with the union piece of it. John, there are lots of people who are unionized that we can help. 
unions are not experts at this by any means and most typically are don't really know how to deal with disability litigation disability claims and uh, what I don't want to see is that she's being given the wrong advice by a union rep who perhaps doesn't know how to look at a medical report or what to do with a disability claim so Mallory just because your union rep is saying to you this isn't going to be enough for an appeal doesn't mean that you don't have enough for a legal claim. So right. please do give us the opportunity to weigh in on all of this. Um, you know, they're, they're not experts. And look, and I'm not, I'm not saying anything ne negative about unions, John. That's not my point. My point is, is that everyone has their swim lane. And, you know, we're really, really good at what we do. And I think that I just don't want people to think that just because they're being told one thing from the union, that that, is, that they should take that to the bank necessarily. And so it's really important in situations like this that people get the right advice from the right people. And our consults are absolutely free. So it doesn't cost Mallory anything to just talk to us for a couple of minutes. Give me the opportunity to take a look at the letter and what the insurance company has said. And let's have a real conversation about how this would play itself out. And really, look, I mean, if she is union, you know, we'd probably take a quick peek at her um, collective agreement just to make sure that we can represent her. But the fact that the union has said that we can, uh, that she can consult with a lawyer, tells me that that's a, the green light that she needs to move forward. Uh, because, look, there are a few uh, people who are unionized in Ontario that we can assist, but generally speaking, the vast majority we can. So last but not least, what I also want to comment on is the graduated return to work part. This is a strategy that insurance companies like to implement because this is a way for them to try and pressure people back to work, right? So they say, okay, we think you're ready to return, so we are going to put something in place um, that's going to gradually get you back to work. But Mallory's been off for five years, John. So I got to wonder, yeah. what does that graduated return to work look like? She likely is being approved for you know total disability for any occupation. So what occupation have they got her back to gradually returning back to? So I think fundamentally, there it sounds like there is some real problems with even what the adjuster is doing with her claim. And the fact that her doctors are saying that she's not capable of returning or even trying to return tells me that the insurance company is trying to fast track this to get this thing closed because they worry that they're going to have Mallory on for a long, long time on claim. That's too many dollars for them to pay out. So they're going to try and find whatever excuse they can under the sun to cut her off and discourage her really to try and get the proper legal advice and actually pursue that legal claim. Mallory, nicely done. We really appreciate it. email. Always educational. You can reach out by phone now, but as we get into a break, I'll give you that number again, one 821 5900 And you can also use mydisabilityquestions.com or email like Mallory as well. And we'll continue. Still a few minutes to go here on the Disability Law Show. We're coming right back. Hang on. Back, Disability Law Show. A few minutes to go. Thank you if you've hung out for the entire hour. We really appreciate that. If you haven't done, take the next step, and that is reach out to us with your own questions. Email help at disabilityrights.com. Or you can call 1-855-821-5900. Reach Tamar and her team for a uh, private conversation on your own time. Uh, Emily is next. Emily says, uh, guys, I'm ready to get some guidance regarding my LTD. On January 4th, 2022, I contracted COVID, which has led to long COVID and a handful of other medical issues. In May of 2022, I was granted LTD without issue. For a year and a half, I've seen numerous doctors and therapists. We're talking physio and speech, occupational and massage, who I'm still actively working with. Currently, I'm under the care of a specialized neurologist at the Movement Disorder Clinic, which I have a report from, which states my disabilities are COVID-related, no psychiatric link to them. 
As I'm now at the one-year mark on LTD, they've been calling and stating that I have a mental illness. According to their doctors, they've decided to send me for an IME, an independent medical examination for psychiatric evaluation. I was told this would be in my area and with a psychiatrist that specializes in COVID. But I just received an email stating that the location, not in my area at all, the insurance adjuster said they had to pick an assessor because he was available sooner than the one that is in my area. Here are my questions. Number one, uh, if it will take me over an hour to attend the assessment, is it reasonable? Number two, can the insurance company insist on a psychological evaluation when my doctors have already stated there is no psychological condition? And then tomorrow, finally, number three, if I don't attend, does the insurance company have the right to terminate my LTD benefits on that basis? Great email. Great email, Emily. Thank you so much for reaching out to us. And you can see, John, right? Long COVID, right? Long mm-hmm. COVID. Yep. And here now they're trying to make a bunch of trouble for Emily. I, I like these cases, John, because I, I got to think, you know, which insurer is going to be the one that's going to stand up before a judge and say that long COVID is not a valid disability, right? They are not going to take that risk, John. They are not going to take that risk. And I think that because of that, uh, you know, they're making decisions on either approving or denying right out of the gates and then putting pressure on these kinds of claimants to close out the claim so that it doesn't get to that point, right? And so they're grappling. Okay, I'm either grappling, that's what I'm reading from all of us, to figure out how do we bring this claim to a close when it's very clearly not a psychiatric or a psychological issue as per her own doctors, and there is no clear beginning, middle, and end to treating long COVID. And that's really what it's coming down to. And, And John, this isn't just long COVID. There are other, lots of other health issues that are similar to this profile that we see lots of denials on, like fibromyalgia, for example, comes to mind, chronic fatigue syndrome, even mental health conditions like PTSD and depression and that. And so why are the adjusters doing what they're doing? It's because they're very mechanical. It's very, I call them box checkers. I say that a lot. And it's because they're, they're given a certain mandate, right? And they're given only certain specific tools that they can use at different phases of the review of these kinds of disability claims. And this adjuster seems very focused on just getting this IME done and completed so that he or she then could potentially have a basis to say, this is not a psychiatric or psychological barrier. You, Emily, should be able to work. And I think what's troubling and frustrating, and I can hear it from Emily's email and her, her questions is, hey, does this make sense? No, Emily, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But unfortunately, the policies are built so that they include sections in them that allow the insurance company to essentially force your hand to attend, to at least participate in their efforts for what they think is the best approach in reviewing your disability claim. If it doesn't make sense, it means it doesn't. And if they are going to rely on this assessment to deny your claim, then you absolutely have an excellent basis to challenge the insurance company on everything that they've done. But I want to caution Emily that if she doesn't attend the assessment, that that's too easy an answer for the insurance company to say you have not been compliant. Our policy says you must cooperate with these efforts. One of the things we want you to do is be assessed. Uh, And yes, your doctors are saying it's not psychological or psychiatric, but our doctors are saying it is. So we want you seen by one of our own doctors. So I would like her to attend. But it does have to make sense in terms of proximity, as in where is this assessment going to take place? And if it is going to be a massive burden for her, a very long drive, 
or some other means of trying to get to this assessment. And if it can't be done virtually, for example, that's that's one thing that came to mind, yeah. then the insurance company should actually be arranging some form of transportation. So it's absolutely fair for m to go to the adjuster and say, hey, look, this is going to take me an hour or two drive from my home. You know, I can't find anyone else to drive me. Will you guys, you know, pay for an Uber or some kind of transportation be arranged so that I can attend the assessment? I think that will go a long way in that cooperation effort. Then at least she's demonstrating that she's trying as opposed to saying, hey, this person is too far or this person is not the right expert, um, you know, and I, I just don't want to attend because it's not reasonable. I'd rather she's trying to actually be cooperative in that process. And so, you know... <sighs> What's going to happen? I think this is the part that really is what's concerning me with Emily's situation. I think what may end up happening is she attends the, the assessment. The doctor makes the conclusions they do around, look, this is not a you know valid disability or there's no barriers for Emily to be working. And then we're going to have to get involved with Emily, I think, and really try and lean on the medical information she already has that supports that there are ongoing symptoms, She's not capable of working. It's not a psychological issue. And there isn't a clear treatment plan that will necessarily get her back at work in three months, six months, eight months, 10 months, whatever it is that the insurance company has set as the quote unquote reasonable period for her to return. But to me, I think the starting point is to try and put something in place to make it so that it is reasonable for her to attend, that the insurance company has put in place the things that they're supposed to do, and then we brace ourselves as to what happens at the end once that medical opinion has been provided to the insurance company and what the insurer might do with it afterwards once they receive it. Will they continue the LTD benefits or not? And if they don't, as I said before, I think this screams out a really good legal claim because these insurance companies, John, they're not going to run these COVID, long COVID claims in front of a court. Absolutely not. They are going to be motivated to resolve early. And, you know, with our help, I think it would be a really good outcome for Emily. It's a good way to wrap the show. Awesome stuff, Tamar. Amity, really uh, appreciate the email and reaching out. By the way, Tamar has worked on the other side for insurance companies, so you can rest assured she's got all the angles figured out. So if you're going to reach out now, Amity, or for you who've been listening for the last hour and you're a little gun-shy to send in an email, you can simply make the phone call or uh, send a private message as well. Email address is help at disabilityrights.ca. Another form you can use, free and anonymous. It's called mydisabilityquestions.com. You simply type in your question, leave it there. It will get answered. It's also got a searchable database. That's the way the algorithm works. So maybe a question like yours has already been posed. So check it out at mydisabilityquestions.com. And then finally, the phone number. You can always make the phone call. Might be your first step, right? 1-855-821-5900. We will catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show.